VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the saddle producing the program this morning. <clears throat> You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So as you know, I'm a Blue Jays fan. Lots of Blue Jays fans out there. Lots of talk starting to ramp up about the possibility to sign free agent Shohei Otani. So Otani had his, uh, a, a, a elbow surgery recently, not Tommy John, although he did have a Tommy John surgery back in 2018. Of course, he's now won the MVP for the second time. 44 home runs, 95 RBIs, 8 triples, 20 stolen bases, and of course, he's a unicorn, right? Also a terrific pitcher. He was 10-5 and with a 3.14 ERA. So for the Jays, they have the highest TV ratings in the majors, which I didn't know until I read about it yesterday. And, of course, the, team, the uh, company that owns the team owns a network that broadcasts the games. So they have the money. There's no question that Rodgers has the money to bring in Otani, but just for comparative purposes. It was on this date in 19, what, let's see here, uh, 1989, Major League center fielder Kirby Puckett signed a record deal, $3 million per year. There's guys making 10 times that. Otani's going to bring in maybe in the neighborhood of $50 million a year. But for Jays fans willing to pay a little bit more for your cell phone or a ticket to go see the ball game, if they bring in what is, you know, a generational player and show Otani. Anyway, there you go. A couple of quick hockey notes as we ease into the big numbers today. So on this date, 1986, Wayne Gretzky became the 13th NHLer to score 500 goals. 47 players have now scored 500 plus goals in the regular season. 34 of them are Canadians, five Americans, Three Slovaks, uh, two Finns, one Czech, and one Swede, and one Russian. So 34 out of the 47 are Canadian-born players to score 500 goals. Also in the state regarding Wayne Gretzky, in 1999, inducted to the Hockey Hall of Fame, and he's number 99, permanently retired by the NHL. All right, a couple of good numbers there. Okay, let's dig into it. So, tis the season, right? People are doing their Christmas shopping, and we'll get into some of the forecasts from the Retail Council of Canada about Christmas spending. And times are tight, and people are maybe going to be more thrifty than they would be in Christmas's past, but... It's also porch pirate season. I mean, the courier vans are going up and down our street nonstop every single day. And, of course, many people are at work, not home. The courier gets out. They put your purchase on the stoop and possibly people roaming your neighborhood just waiting for the courier to drive away so they can steal the package that's on your front step. So I suppose, you know, there are some tips and tricks that people use, whether you get your courier items delivered to your office so you get them personally and or there's a couple of tricks how you can use Canada Post for courier drop-off. If you want to add some advice to people out there who would hate to see their package stolen, like we had one stolen last year, it was extremely frustrating, but that's out there. And regarding Christmas spending, so apparently Atlantic Canadians are going to spend more than any other region. This is, of course, a report from the Retail Council of Canada, and of course, it's just some guesstimates involved here. So average Canadians spend about $900 per person for the holiday season. They anticipate Atlantic Canadians will spend over $1,100, up from $782 last year. 
year. And then there's the whole concept of getting a gift card or a more personal item. A gift card does really feel quite impersonal. You know, no personality, no real thought given to it. But some people appreciate the gift card. So here's the numbers that they're guessing uh, this year. The report shows 45% of Canadians intend to purchase a gift card for the holiday season. And that's 37% of Canadians would prefer a gift card over a physical item. Not me. I like some thought going into the gifts. Although we all want to give versus receive, right? Of course we do. And in the world of shopping, I do get a little bit frustrated with some of the stores that have gone virtually to the entire option of just self-checkouts. Now, apparently some of the big retailers are moving away from the self-checkout. They talk about some of the issues regarding, you know, a personal relationship with their customers. Yeah, right. So the big reason why many are moving away from the self-checkout is theft. So there's somewhere between 15% and 23% of theft is directly related to the fact that people either are customer error as you're scanning your items and or simply just leaving one in the bag and scanning the items and making your pay and ripping them off and walking out the door. And of course, then there's the concept of being told open your bag show me your receipt and you don't have to you're just not obliged to do it at all but anyway porch pirates and christmas spending what do you think okay let's get into it so we've talked about the fact that there has been a new four-person working group struck to look at policing the model of policing the ever-changing complexity of the type of crimes we're seeing Police have long been criticized for still doing it the old way, whatever that might be, and the need to get back to more community policing. The concern being brought forward by many is we know the working group will be led by a lady named Andrea McKenna. She's held many executive positions with the government, another senior government official, a member of the RCMP, and a member of the RNC. Of course, government funds the police, and you need police involved in conversation around transformation, but the concern that's being brought forward by many is real. So why isn't there, say, two more people involved in this working group? Say, for instance, the authors of the uh, report coming from First Light. You know, they had a look at what maybe the possibility of civilian oversight and whatnot, so maybe that voice would be welcomed at that table. Maybe someone else who's an advocate in some form or another regarding crime and punishment and rehabilitation and incarceration, maybe more voices at the table as opposed to simply the entity that funds and the entity that administers policing in the province. So I think this is long overdue. They'll look at a variety of different things to change how the uh, law enforcement agencies proceed in the future. It's not anticipated that there will be one single police force here, notably the RNC. But if you have a concern with the makeup of the working group, I know where you're coming from. You know, some additional voices would be very, very helpful. And I do think that someone from the First Light organization that wrote a very comprehensive report and recommendations for policing in the province, maybe, just maybe, that would be a welcomed additional voice at the table. Your thoughts. Okay. Okay. Virtual care. You know, there is going to be always comments about the intersection between private health care offerings and public health care offerings. Now, there has long been private offerings in health care in this country. There really has been. So, you know, just look at dentistry, for instance. And for all intents and purposes, family doctors that set up their own clinic, they're kind of subcontractors. So the worry with things like the expansion of virtual care, you know, I assume, and that's always a dangerous practice to assume anything, but when we're trying to add care services to people who are without a family doctor, as opposed to using doctors that are already working here in the province to add to their workload virtual care, the concept is to bring in an out-of-province company like Teladoc to offer these virtual care services. You know, I think people are pleased that they're going to have to be registered with the College of Physicians and Surgeons, members of the NLMA and all the rest of it. They will be somewhere in Canada. 
But the concept, whether it be from the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association or the Registered Nurses Union, is that there is the concept of slippery slope regarding more and more private inside of our universal healthcare system. You know, the pay will be similar. There's a no poaching clause and all the rest of it. And the issue regarding more and more private offerings, and it's happening in many parts of the country, for instance, what knee and hip replacement surgery and cash on the barrel head and jumping the public queue. You know, if you are someone who has that kind of money, $25,000 to get a surgery as opposed to wait for your public health care coverage, then some people say, well, so be it. That just bumps me up in the public queue. The problem could be, down the road, if this happens more and more and it trickles in, you know, step by step, maybe, just maybe, what we'll see are the private doctors and clinics, they'll be able to turn away whoever they want, right? They won't have to take on all the complex medical cases. They'll be left to the public system. So there are some legitimate worries out there, but we cannot ignore the fact that private health care has in, been in place in this country for quite a long time. The concept of it is when do we draw the line? and ensure that it isn't all of a sudden the scales are tipped towards private versus public, but that are some of the worries being brought forward by the NLMA and the Registered Nurses Union, and your thoughts mostly welcome. Because, of course, the gold standard is absolutely an in-person visit with your doctor, the continuity of care, the relationship that you'll be able to strike with your family doctor, some of which will not be available to folks who rely on virtual care. And of course, again, not every single ill or ailment is going to be uh, dealt with with a virtual care setting. Of course, there's going to be plenty of opportunities and occasions where you do need to see a doctor up close and personal. But those are some of the concerns with the makeup of the working group in the transformation of policing in the province and what virtual care means. And I do think it would be really great to understand exactly how Teladoc got chosen. If there's a local company like Medicuro, run by Dr. Todd Young, whose bid was a third of the $22 million contract for two years gone to Teladoc, how did that work? What was coming up short in a local bid at a third of the price? We don't know, but it would be helpful to understand it. Quick mention of what we know happened out in Lewisport and the allegations that there was a racially motivated attack on the doctor's uh, daughter at school. And the doctor, and that's George Ambrack, has said that he, he and his family have faced issues regarding racism over the couple, last couple of years. They're going to stay. So his wife is also a family doctor. They have a patient roster of 5,000. So apparently they're staying, but they'll be staying with a zero tolerance going forward for the kind of activity and behavior and comments that have been directed at the doctors themselves and their family in Lewisport. But good news for that community that the doctors have chosen to stay, and we'll see how that unfolds in the days, weeks, months, years to come. All right, what do I got here? Okay. It's hard to really wrap your mind around certain things regarding inflation and food inflation and whatnot. People will reject you know, some of the numbers coming from Stats Canada, which is not the government. It's a government agency. Let's just, say it, let's just talk about what they said yesterday. So they are telling us, and it's hard to feel any of this immediate relief, I can guarantee you that, but they say that inflation went from 3.8% uh, last month to 3.1%. That's a pretty significant drop. They point to the fact that gasoline, the price of gasoline, has declined by some 6.4% month to month. I don't know if I'm going to be able to feel it. I know that gas is cheaper this week than it was uh, six weeks ago, 
But those whole inflation numbers, and then they go through this exercise of stripping things out. You know, you strip out gasoline or you strip out shelter. Shelter is the number one contributor to inflation, inflationary pressures in the country at this moment in time. But those are those numbers. If you'd like to take it on, we can do it. Okay. The fall fiscal update, or whatever they're calling the FES, so it's the economic statement. Not even really sure where to start, but let's do this. Sometimes, you know, and I said this in the newsroom to my colleagues this morning, when we were growing up and you'd say, so-and-so is a millionaire, wow, that person has a lot of money. Now we talk about people who are billionaires, and we throw around numbers like billions quite cavalierly, right? Just for context, to try to paint the picture with just how enormous a sum a billion is. And I use the reference to time. A million seconds is 11.57 days. A billion seconds is 31.7 years. So we're a long way from a million to a billion. And yet we just use billions as if, well, that's, you know, it's not a lot of money. It's no big deal, you know, whatever the case may be. So a billion seconds, 31.7 years. A billion minutes is about 19,000 years. A billion hours is about 114,000 years. Let's get into some of the numbers. All right, so the top line items. And, of course, when finance ministers, provincially and or federally, are talking about budgets, it always comes with that dollop of optimism and the hope and the fear that things don't get worse. There is really limited growth, economic growth predicted for the country, you know, less than half of a percent in the uh, coming months. So the thought is we'll probably be able to avoid a recession, but the numbers are not Uh, not rosy at all. Even though the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, kind of offers these these, uh, numbers and policies with that dose of things are good. Maybe not as great as the government wants to pretend they are. So, it's a forecasted additional spend of $20.8 billion over the next six years. The forecasted deficit for this year, $40 billion. Uh, There's going to be an increase of the deficit to some $52 billion next year. Federal debt. This is where the conservatives come after the government. And, of course, we do need to include the fact that we also just try to navigate a a pandemic, which came with some spending that was certainly unforeseen. But uh, regardless of that, the federal deficit back in 2015, when the Liberals took over government, was $619.3 billion. Now, $1.2 trillion, forecasted to move to $1.4 trillion by 2829. Then you do some references to how much it costs to service the debt. So the overall budget is somewhere in the neighborhood of $440 billion. But debt servicing at this moment in time is $46.5 billion. That's just about equal to the amount of money the federal government transfers to the provinces in the form of a health transfer dollar. $46.5 billion to service the debt. That number is going to grow to uh, $52.4 billion in 2024. Amazing stuff. And inside this spend, and I think we're anticipating a call from the Shadow Minister of Finance representing the Conservative Party of Canada at some point this morning. And we'll talk about where they think the, some of the spending is unnecessary and predictably. I mean, you can write the reaction of the parties before the fall fiscal or fall economic statement was offered. Mr. Poliev, the leader of the CPC, says it's disgusting. Mr. Singh, the leader of the NDP, thinks they should have spent more. But anyway, $15 billion in new loan funding to what they're calling the apartment construction loan program to see some 101,000 new homes built by 3132. Man. Nowhere inside of that 
is coming anywhere close to the forecast requirement of the number of additional units to be built. But anyway, that's the housing number there. Also a break for co-op housing. Had a great chat yesterday with the property manager for the cooperative regarding housing in the province, Rosalind Langer. There's a big GST break coming for cooperative housing build. Then they're digging in on the Airbnbs. All right. So, yes, there might be an opportunity to free up some short-term rentals to more permanent rentals or maybe homes for sale. So they're not going to allow income tax deductions for any expenses incurred with your operation of Airbnbs. Not going to be well received by people who are in that particular business. Even when you look at some of the big cities, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, it only really equals, if this works the way the government thinks it might, it only frees up maybe some 19,000 homes. Not insignificant, but not huge either. Anyway... Then they talk about a fiscal anchor for moving forward. The Conservative Party, of course, says balanced budget. It's going to be hard to balance budget at this moment in time. But Minister Freeland talks about 1% of the GDP affordable, uh, uh, afforded to uh, potential deficits in the future. And then last one before we get to your call. This so-called mortgage charter? All right. Again, being talked about as if it's some sort of real big deal for people who are having, have a mortgage and worried about rising interest rates, what have you. They just are allowing the lender to uh, to extend your amortization period and to waive certain fees associated with remortgaging your home. Wait now, are you really telling me that this is some sort of big deal? Because the uh, government is not obliging the financial institutions, the lenders, the mortgage companies to do anything. They're allowing them to do it. So what do we think will happen in the future? Companies that are based on, they'll tell you customer relations and all the rest of it. They're based on profit, period. Yes, you can have a good relationship with your banker, but what's the likelihood of going in to renegotiate your mortgage and they say, well, Minister Freeland says we're allowed to do X, Y, and Z, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to extend your amortization period. I'm going to waive this fee. I'm going to waive that fee in an effort to keep you as a happy, uh, content customer of ours. Mm, we'll see. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineatvocm.com. And did I say, I'm sorry, Patty, but did you say 3132? 3132 what? I'm not sure what that's in reference to. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, oh, here we go. The Liberal Member for Waterford Valley, the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, is in the queue to talk about the expansion of virtual care, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. Welcome to the program. So let's talk virtual care. Right off the bat, you know, some of the concerns being brought forward by the NLMA and the Registered Nurses Union is that, in reference to the comments made by Dr. Pat Parfrey, the Deputy Minister, is that this is a this is here to stay. Virtual care is not just going to be a small portion of the offering for rural isolated folks and or seniors or people with disabilities. It's going to be expanded further and further. Their worry is that it's going to replace the efforts to recruit actual physical doctors for that in-person primary care. Your, your comments. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And, and I know, um, you know, you can't, in, in a news conference or a healthcare action update, we also talked about, you know, sort of pick one comment as sort of, you know, picking a comment that was made. You have to look at all comments in their totality. So, you know, I, I clearly articulated that uh, virtual care, uh, this, this uh, service that's being provided, while it's absolutely necessary, um, especially at this particular time when we have patients that are unattached, uh, registered with Patient Connect. This is episodic care uh, and continuity of care 
is uh, is most important. Um, that's what's provided by your family physician or nurse practitioner when you are attached. So uh, these um, services, such as virtual care, provided uh, through this RFP, is meant to uh, complement the existing family care teams, emergency uh, department staff, urgent care clinics. Uh, we have recruited uh, since April 1st 77 doctors uh, in the province, over 300 registered nurses. The vacancy list for uh, registered nurses is uh, shrinking. It's it's uh, less than 600 vacancies now. At one point, we were up to uh, 735. Uh, you know, so we are continuing to recruit. We're continuing to uh, work on, on retaining staff. Part of the uh, recent agreement with the RNU uh, was focused on retention of, of nurses as much as recruitment. But I want to talk more about virtual care because, you know, virtual care will be part of the future. Uh, there's no question about that, but it doesn't replace uh, your family physician. It doesn't replace your nurse practitioner. Uh, there are communities where we have an aging population, uh, a shrinking population, where it is becoming more and more and more competitive uh, or challenging to to uh, recruit a primary care provider to those communities. Uh, this will provide an assurance to everybody in the province once it's fully up and running, it's starting, but once it's fully up and running, that if at any point you're without a primary care provider, you have access to a uh, physician to provide primary care through this virtual service. The concern also by the NLMA is that there's going to be a potential disparity between how much they get paid for an in-person visit versus a uh, virtual care offering. So is it exactly the same amount? So, I mean, we've addressed that with the NLMA uh, months ago. Uh, they brought this concern to us. They actually sat in and were part of overseeing uh, the the evaluation of the RFP. Uh, so they were engaged and, and involved along the way. They did bring this concern. The three concerns, really, that they raised, we've addressed. One is uh, that uh, these physicians have to be licensed with the College of Physicians and Services in the province. They have to be attached to the NLMA. Um, so that that's one of them. The other was that uh, the uh, virtual service cannot poach doctors uh, from Newfoundland and Labrador. If there's a retired physician who wants to lend their service, uh, you know, a field they can make a contribution, that's perfectly okay. Or, you know, if somebody fulfills their full-time duties to the provincial health service and, and want to contribute one or two evenings a week, that's perfectly okay. Uh, but they cannot poach from this province. So that is actually written into the RFP. The other thing that's uh, guaranteed between the, the vendor and the provincial health authority is that uh, physicians will be paid in line with uh, the MOA with the NLMA. So similar services are similar pay. Okay, so there's nothing stopping a doctor from going to work with Teladoc, and I'm not so sure we can tell a doctor what he or she can do, but let's talk about the RFP period. How many bidders were there? 
So I don't know. That was handled through uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services. But what I do know is that all submissions went through an open and transparent procurement process. I have never interfered with the procurement process, and I won't. Uh, so I, I can't tell you the number uh, that have... But we did ensure that uh, there was a fairness advisor to oversee the process, uh, that evaluators had clinical experience, technical experience, and uh, policy expertise. Uh, submissions were also required to meet all of the requirements of the RFP. So this went through a rigorous process, and even when the Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services, the Provincial Health Authority, uh, came to my office with a preferred bidder, I still engage the procurement office here at the uh, within the provincial government to have a double look at this to make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. So, okay, so it's a $22 million contract over two years, an option to extend for a third year. So is it possible for us to ever find out what the difference between the Teladoc bid was or the response to the RFP versus, for instance, a local provincial company like Medicuro with a one-third of the cost inside that bid? So there's $3.5 million versus 11 per year for Teladoc. Are we able to find out where the shortcomings were in the Medicuro bid? Because there's a long way between those. You know, a third of the price certainly sounds like something that I don't know how we considered it or where the shortcomings were, but can we find out? Yeah, so... I. I do know that uh, uh, you know Medicare will have an opportunity to sit with the provincial health authority, um, and I can't say for sure, but I believe the fairness advisor will be part of that process uh, to talk about uh, you know the the RFP. Uh, for example, I don't know what the bid was by uh, Medicare, but I do know. Uh, that they look at, um, you know, cost is not the only factor. That you know, every submission had to meet the requirements of the RFP. Um, so, Medicare will have the opportunity to uh, sit with the provincial health authority and and go over their submission and talk about where it fell short. In the world of virtual care as we currently know it, why is there a cap on the number of appointments a doctor can have per day? And I believe that number is forty. We have uh, in the department, I mean, you know, we, we do receive calls and sometimes emails uh, from individuals who are trying to get an in-person appointment. There's nothing beats an in-person face-to-face appointment with your family physician. Um, you know, so the, the uh, removing the cap would make it, in some cases, uh, not all. I mean, you know, certainly there are, are physicians who prefer to see their patients in person, uh, but we believe that in person uh, is most important. There is a role for physicians in terms of virtual care. Uh, some individuals, uh, you know, are, are not ambulatory. That some individuals are. are Uh, more remote and there is a role for virtual care uh, by family physicians Uh, but most important is uh, the face-to-face in person. But why would that mean how does that answer why is there a cap? Uh, Because the uh, you know it's important to ensure that the face-to-face is the primary focus as opposed to virtual. Um, If there was no cap um, you would see less face-to-face in, with some physicians. And, and again, uh, you know, even with, with the um, 
with the cap there and and the virtual uh, there are many positions that primarily and only see patients face to face but you know we we also have to ensure uh, that uh, the um, the patient has throughout the province has an ability to see their physician face to face. If I'm in New West Valley and Teladoc is now the service that's going to be offered in my community, uh, can I, if I choose, just go to Medicuro, for instance, or is there some sort of restrictions on patients and their options? So at the emergency department in New West Valley, um, if somebody walks into the emergency department, um, they're if the emergency department is not staffed by a physician, and we've been able to get more and more physician coverage at the, emer- uh, at the emergency department in New West Valley, uh, but if for some reason um, we are not able to, uh, on a particular day or on a weekend, have physician coverage, uh, there will be physician oversight virtually through this contract, uh, but there will also be on-site staffing, uh, which could include a, a nurse practitioner, a registered nurse, um, or other medical staff, uh, such as advanced care paramedic or respiratory therapist, who would have the ability to do the airway management. So this virtual physician, you will still have hands-on somebody able to do the physical examination mm-hmm. with virtual oversight by a physician. Uh, so if you walk into an emergency department where it is being assisted uh, by physician virtual oversight, uh, there will be on-site staffing um, to ensure that you, you have the physical examination as well. And so they'll only be, after the in-person triage, they'll only be able to deal with teledoc. As a result, if I'm in the West Valley and present at the Kitty Wake Hospital Clinic? So the, the, the service that's provided at New West Valley will be through this virtual contract. Uh, so uh, if somebody walks in this virtual contract, a virtual physician will be the contractor provided, uh, or providing virtual coverage okay. at that emergency department. Uh, very quickly before I let you go. So the thought about, you know, Canadian-born doctors trained abroad in an ability to get a residency position and also the concept of the practice-ready assessment and the number of seats at uh, Munns Med School. What's your role as minister in collaborating with the interim dean, Dr. McKean, to talk about how that works? Because there's internationally trained doctors that if they get this clinical field assessment over the course of 12 weeks can enter the fold and practice as a doctor here in this province. People think the system isn't working up to the demand that's in place. What's your role as minister to address that to see if it can indeed be improved and more frequent so that we can see internationally trained doctors as part of our ongoing delivery system? I believe there is room for improvement. We've had a number of meetings um, with the college and with Memorial. Um, and just to give some background, Patty, there was um, previous the, the uh, process was what they called CSAT, and we were getting 30 or 40 international physicians a year uh, in the province through CSAT. Um, CSAT was discontinued, um, and uh, I know that you know the memorial. Uh, you know, I, I guess there were concerns raised. Most provinces are going with the practice-ready assessment as opposed to CSAT. Uh, I think the majority have now done so. Uh, the intake through the practice-ready assessment was two cohorts of eight a year. Uh, so that was 
16. So where we were getting 30 or 40 a year, uh, we had you know, been limited to the 16 per year. So that's now increased to 20. Uh, we are also um, meeting with Memorial and the college to put a similar process to CSAC back in place. Uh, what it will be called, we don't know. Um, in the interim, we're calling it CSAC 2. Um, but, you know, the, the practice-ready assessment is an assessment of uh, the physician's competencies uh, and abilities to ensure that they are able to practice in the province. CSAC was more of a training program um, to ensure that physicians met the competencies. Um, it gave them the ability to come here, even though they, they may not have uh, met all of the requirements. Um, so PRA will continue to be an assessment process. We are looking for a training component that will allow more international doctors to come here as well. So part of the reason we've seen a shortage of physicians was moving from CSAC to PRA. Um, and, uh, you know, the provincial government is concerned about that, which is why we're pushing for the, the second process, the training process. Part of it is, uh, you know, the the... the uh, I guess baby boomers for, you know, a lack of a better term, but we're we're seeing more retirements than we are people entering, which is the reason we've increased the number of seats at Memorial University. We've increased the number of seats uh, at the Bachelor of Science Nursing and and um, the LPN and and nurse practitioner programs, uh, which is the reason we put such a. a an increased focus on recruitment uh, outside of the province because. Uh, you know, because of the factors leading into the shortage, and there is a global shortage now, which makes it even more competitive, but we are putting measures in place to deal with that shortage. Is CSAT a clinical sustainability assessment tool? Is that what that means? That acronym? Yes, it is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. For seniors, say, for instance, or someone who's not technologically savvy, they present, they get the in-person triage with an advanced care paramedic or whatever the case move, move on to their virtual care. Does someone help walk them through how the virtual care works, or they're left to their own devices? So I know the NDP complain that this is not a good service because not everybody is tech savvy. Um, you know, first of all, for those who are tech savvy, now they have an alternate path to primary care. For those who are not tech savvy, um, the virtual physician coverage will be available through either an app, a website, or by telephone. So if somebody doesn't have the tech savvy to to use an app or the website uh, to to allow, you know, through an iPad, the physician to see them uh, as they are in in their own home, uh, they can um, get virtual physician coverage by telephone as well. So square the circle for us. If you say uh, face-to-face, in-person visits with a clinician is the primary focus, but yet virtual care is here to stay, it's sort of contradictory. So square that circle for us. Yeah, not at all, Patty. I wouldn't say it's contradictory at all. So our focus in working with the NLMA, uh, in working with the Provincial Health Authority, is to recruit physicians. Uh, we have family care teams where every individual in this province who wants to be attached to a family care team can be attached to a family care team and see a, a physician or a nurse practitioner in person. Those family care teams we're building over the next uh, two to three years. Um, right now, we have a gap. So 
that gap can be filled by virtual physician coverage for for individuals who do not have for, uh, physician uh, who do not have a physician in the province. And you know, certainly having a virtual physician is a heck of a whole lot better than having no physician, Patty. Uh, so this is a bridge to get us to the family care teams being fully implemented. But there will also be communities that are isolated in the province uh, or you may have somebody in the province who, um, you know, wants to speak to a doctor, you know, immediately and the virtual physician coverage will give them that ability. Uh, so we will rely less on, on virtual coverage as we implement the family care teams, as we recruit family physicians so that in-person, uh, face-to-face, hands-on care is available. In the meantime, this virtual um, coverage is absolutely essential in the province for those who don't have physician coverage. In the future, uh, while virtual will be a secondary uh, to in-person um, coverage as we're able to recruit and put the family care teams in place in the most rural and remote communities where you have an aging and declining population and you may not be able to recruit a physician to those communities uh, virtual care will be essential to those communities and, and those communities and those individuals living in those communities I can assure you would rather have virtual care than no care. Appreciate the time this morning Minister. My pleasure thank you Take care. Bye-bye. That's Tom Osborne, the Minister of Health and Community Services. Let's take a break. You want to pick up where he left off? Do it right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Kim Churchill. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm doing fantastic today. Thanks. I, um, I'm really excited, actually, um, to call into your show today. It's been a while since we had a chat, and um, today I'm actually excited to be able to announce that I'm seeking the NDP nomination for Conception Bay East, Bell Island. NDP, why that party? Well, you know what? <laughs> it's a very simple answer. Um, as you're aware, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, my family uh, was involved with a six-year battle um, that involved both government and the school district uh, to get uh, an equitable education for our son, who is deaf, um, Carter. And um, I remember the very first phone call, actually, I met was with you, Patty. And um, that was the first day that I had gone public and talked about how Carter didn't have a teacher and that uh, he was so isolated in school. He didn't have access to sign language. He couldn't even learn his first language. Um, and I remember, you know, your your um, your shock and your disbelief that this was even possible that that a child can go completely ignored and dismissed and discarded like that in a school system and that was the that was the um uh, the i i guess the impression that everybody uh, the feelings that everyone seemed to have that everyone was in shock and when i got off the phone with you that day the very next phone call i got was from lorraine michael and we had a really good, productive conversation. And Lorraine immediately went to work. And she started, and you might recall this, we did a, pet- a petition. Um, we had uh, thousands of names um, gathered and signed on this petition. She presented it to the House. Um, and Carter, myself, and my husband Todd all showed up at the House and uh, had that petition um, presented. 
And, you know, after that, we we continue to work um, with the NDP party. And it was the most support that we received. Um, to fast forward, when we recently went to the hearing and had this um, presented in front of the Human Rights Commission, um, we actually sent out an invitation to all parties in government to be part of this hearing, to, to allow them the opportunity to be educated, to allow them the opportunity to come in and understand. We had been talking about this for years publicly, what was happening in the school system. Um, and you know what? The only person that showed up was Jim Din. And not only did he not just show up, he showed up several times. And of course, Lorraine Michael had been retired by then, but she was also there. And so to me, you know, here was a, a person who was so genuine. He was so supportive. He really understood um, what the gravity of what was happening with Carter and what was happening um, in the education system. And I really felt for the first time that um, I was cared about, that my son was cared about, that we weren't being ignored, um, and that there was just a genuine um, concern and interest in wanting to help me and wanting to help my child uh, and us as a family. And so, you know, sometime after that, Jim did speak to me about uh, possibly being interested in running if the opportunity should arise, and here we are. <laughs> Kim, we know the family struggles and going through the Human Rights Commission and there was a financial award for you and Todd and Carter, then there was a thought that this would be precedent setting. Where should we be going from here? Because the concept of inclusivity and supports that are required, whether it be ASL interpreters and or itinerant teachers, uh, children around the spectrum, behavioral disorders, all the rest, I don't hear a whole lot about working on this decision, which could indeed be precedent setting. What do you suggest we should do with your decision and steps forward? Absolutely. And you know what? It has been precedent setting. Um, in fact, we had a uh, expert witness who was um, a lady from uh, Toronto, um, and she uh, she was uh, one of our deaf witnesses, um, very renowned publications um, in the deaf community. And she uh, has spoke in um, at the UK, University of UK, and uh, she's actually going to Austria in May to also speak again. And she's speaking on on this topic. She's speaking specifically about Carter's case. She's made publications with um, um, the BC University as well, and uh, all across Canada there have been numerous submissions on Carter's case that have been published. So it has been president setting. I know that in Ontario, um, people up there are looking very closely at what changes they need to make because all things that are happening in their daycare systems, that they are not giving children the access to American Sign Language, um, and that they're being told that the parents have to choose between either um, uh, speech therapy or sign language. They're not given the options that they can actually do both. And so I have gotten many emails and messages from all over the world of people telling us how this has had an impact on them. Locally, there is so much more that needs to be done with regards to this specific area. 
Um, one of the things that has been extremely upsetting to me as a parent who's gone through this uh, is that when we keep bringing it up to government that these, these, there still needs to be changes, that this is not enough, they keep saying, well, no, Carter's in a classroom now. He's in a classroom with other deaf peers. He's got access to American Sign Language now. Everything is good. Well, no, the reality is, is that there's children on the West Coast that don't have teachers. There's children in Labrador that don't have teachers. There's children in Central that don't have teachers. Not only do they not have teachers, but they don't have access to American Sign Language. And I, for one, know that when you don't have access to your first language, the isolation is real. The mental health impact is real. And these children, I, my heart cries for them because I know what happened personally to my child, and I know the impact that, still, that he still suffers from. Um, and so real changes should be happening now. Real changes can happen right now, and they should be because of this um, court case. And um, all I'm seeing from the government is burying their heads in the sand and pretending that everything is solved because we solved Carter's case. And we have put something in place for him. But it's bigger than Carter Churchill. Uh, Kim, I appreciate the time this morning. Good luck with the nomination. Oh, thanks so much, Patty. I appreciate your time as well. Take, Take good care. care. Bye-bye. Kim Churchill Bye-bye. seeking the NDP nomination in the pending by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, of course, David Brazel, leaving at the end of the year, and that by-election will be coming. And people still wonder aloud when the general election will be coming. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Colin Corcoran's there to talk about the farmer's market, and Robert has a law statement that hopes you can help find. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's continue. Line number three. Robert, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, my first time on, on open line, and I uh, probably a little bit nervous, but uh, anyway, uh, on Monday, my wife and I were on the way to the Health Science Hospital, and uh, between the entrance and the admittance there, uh, my wife removed her gloves, and uh, she lost her engagement ring and her wedding ring. And we looked all over the floor area there, but we couldn't find it. And we were wondering if one of your listeners uh, came across the ring and uh, didn't know what to do with it. But uh, I guess the rings are no good to anybody else except the owners themselves. And uh, if I could give you my cell number, and if one of your listeners find it, if they give me a call, uh, it would be much appreciated. Go right ahead. What's and, your number? 740 uh, 740-5995. Okay. 709-740-5995. Robert with the women's lost engagement and wedding ring. And, of course, the sentimental value is priceless when we're talking about an item like lost wedding rings and engagement rings. So hopefully someone picks it up. And as opposed to just getting $20 for it at a hawk, please don't do that. Please return it. I assume, Robert, you checked with uh, the security on site? Yes, we checked with security and left our name there as well. Okay. uh, We looked all around the area, but we could not find it. And um, they're over 50 years old. (laughs) How long have you been married? Uh, About 54 years now. Congratulations on that. That's a lovely number. And please, folks, if you picked up those rings, you know, either bring them to to security at the Health Sciences or give Robert a call. His number, once again, is 709-740-5995. Fingers crossed you get it back, Robert. 
Yes, thank you very much, and, and a reward is offered. Okay, that'll probably entice someone because the reward's probably more than they're going to get if they just try to hawk it at one of the resale shops. So, uh, fingers crossed. Exactly. Let me know how it works out. I will so, and thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Hope he gets that back. Uh, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the uh, CEO at the Community Sector Council, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Colin Corcoran. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Grant, this morning. Thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Excited even uh, about all the things that are happening in the community sector, and I hope to uh, talk a bit about that for your listeners today. Sure. Where do you want to start? So I think starting from the top, um, uh, we have several events happening over the next week as a benefit to uh, community groups and organizations, their volunteers, their paid staff. And I'll talk about a couple of them, but then focus on the event at the farmer's market on uh, on Monday coming. So uh, if uh, listeners are out there and you're involved in community group or organization, you're looking for uh, financial uh, literacy support, and if you're looking for human resource support, we have a couple uh, events happening this week in particular. Uh, so first one is uh, tomorrow we're hosting a uh, financial literacy uh, session in partnership with uh, CPA Canada provided through their literacy program uh, whereby um, uh, groups and organizations particularly boards of directors uh, can run through a session about um, understanding financial statements which as we know for community groups and organizations sometimes it's a challenge uh, to uh, it's a challenge to on top of not only providing services to their clients and uh, to the general public, but also needing to stay on top of and informed about the technical skills or some of the requirements needed uh, when you're managing uh, funds on behalf of an organization. Uh, the second one is, again, uh, this week on Friday morning, uh, we're hosting a, um, a panel and uh, sharing session at The Lantern, a great social enterprise uh, in, uh, in St. John's, and that one is uh, in-person and virtual. Uh, where we'll talk about succession planning in uh, leadership in the sector. And we'll have four leaders from the sector who are actively uh, starting or going through uh, the leadership succession process. And we'll also dive into some topics around retention, particularly um, uh, presentation on four-day work week and uh, culture as a driver for retention. And so, Patty, those are two areas that we hear from community groups and organizations from the financial literacy side to support on the human resources side that community groups and organizations are interested in learning more about and so uh, listeners can go to our website at uh, cscnl.ca and on the top scroller you have the opportunity to engage in either one of those uh, particular sessions the 40 work week conversation i love every time i bring it up on this program people come at me from all sides it can't work doesn't work everyone's lazy already that, 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 that the biggest companies in the world that have tried it it's been hugely successful productivity up contentment up retention of employees up uh, profitability up so i mean it does, wouldn't work for me of course because we're a seven day 24 7 operation and it won't work for many industries but it's a really fun conversation to have and people really get mad at me when i bring it up but say la vie uh, i want to get to the well-being fair before we get to the news what's happening so on Monday, uh, we are hosting a well-being community fair. 
at the St. John's Farmer's Market. This is open to the public, uh, free to attend, and I think even the first 100 attendees, so for uh, listeners are getting the sneak peek, uh, the first 100 attendees uh, will walk away with a little uh, wellness bag uh, as well from the event. And so uh, the purpose of the Community Wellbeing Fair, doors open at 1 o'clock at St. John's Farmer's Market and goes until 7. The purpose is to uh, meet and see the 45 uh, groups and organizations from the community sector that are actively contributing to well-being in our society. Uh, We have a a, a large diversity of organizations that are involved from all dimensions of well-being. So when when we spoke last about the social determinants of health, and we spoke about how the community sector is really the front lines uh, for um, for changing uh, and contributing positively to well-being in this province. Um, they're there, and we figured it was a great opportunity to showcase uh, what they have to offer uh, to people. And so we're happy to be joined by Dr. Fitzgerald to provide a special uh, special uh, 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 opening address for us. And we'll have activities throughout the day, uh, all in the theme of well-being and what the community sector can provide. And I assume in the world of well-being, people might immediately go to your physical well-being, but given the pressures of the day, what sort of attachment or focus are you going to have on mental well-being? So uh, we have several groups who um, uh, represent uh, mental well-being in multiple dimensions due to the complexity. Uh, so some of the organizations include Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, support system that is out there, uh, and Choices for Youth are joining us as well, uh, Jacob Poster Memorial Foundation, and we also have groups and organizations from other dimensions of well-being too. Because as, as we know and as we discussed before, well-being encompasses the number of factors that influence your life and then influence influence your health at the end of the day. So uh, we know that getting active and being, uh, and being active contributes positively to your, uh, to your uh, mental and your physical health. So for example, we're excited to uh, have uh, Bicycle NL, the Avalon Nordic Ski Club, uh, but beyond that, food security is another uh, significant dimension of wellness. Uh, food First will be joining us, Food Producers Forum, O'Brien's Farm, and between all the other dimensions, uh, there's there's a little bit of everything for everyone, and uh, there should be uh, there should be some interesting booths and presentations that would appeal to everyone, particularly as they're going into the holiday season and thinking about their wellness. I appreciate the time this morning, Colin. Good luck with all the various events. Thank you for so much for having us, Patty. Happy to do it. Good luck. Take care. Take care of yourself. That's Colin Corcoran. He's the CEO of the Community Sector Council, Newfoundland and Labrador, an organization that does a variety of important work in the community, no doubt. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Good, boy. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you okay. All right. Patty, I'm calling about uh, about our uh, oldest boy, and he's in, in his early 20s, and his girlfriend, who were downtown uh, <coughs> uh, last Saturday night. And they were at a, uh, a function down there. Anyways, he had too much to drink, and on the way home in the cab, he got sick. So, fine enough. So, he got kicked out of the cab. And the cab driver demanded that his girlfriend pay the cab fee that was there then, 50 bucks, and another $50 to clean up the mess, and then she vacated the cab. 
So here are the two of them at 2 o'clock in the morning are left on the side of the road in the freezing cold with hardly enough clothes on, you know, the, 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 right to cover the, more material on a baseball, and left on the side of the road. Now, you know, on Livis, is this, like at some point, you know, we, we had to realize that you can't get a cab half the time downtown anyways to bring you home. When you do, is this the trouble you're going to get yourself into because you got sick? Seriously, buddy. You know, I can't wait for Uber to show up here in Lyft. I've used them in every major city in the country. I've never had an issue, right? If they show up when they say they're going to, and you just and it's already paid. And I couldn't care less about it being peak hours. You get what you pay for. So, you know, to the local cab company that did this, you know who you are, all right? You own it all. Right? You know who you are. Fair enough. But guess what? The sooner we get some reliable service in this area where you can actually get a cab, the better. You don't think an Uber driver would be also uh, upset with someone being sick in the cab and potentially kick them out? What would keep an Uber driver from doing something similar in your mind? Absolutely. But listen, you they paid the, the cab fee, and then they demanded that. Oh, I'm, I'm not finished. They demanded that that young girl, you know, early twenty or twenty-one years old, pay then to clean the car. She felt so intimidated and afraid. She was frightened to death. Right? She paid it in a fare. So that's how that driver treated that young lady to begin with. There. And of course, you followed up with the ownership at this particular cab company, and they told you what. When I called, I asked. I left my name and number. No one's returned my call. This is why I've uh, reached out to you. Yeah, and I don't know if uh, a different cab company or a different cab driver would react differently. I don't know if they've got rules in place that the uh, public should be aware of before they take a cab, knowing that there could be a clean-up fee associated with whatever the case may be, if they bled on the seat or they became sick in this uh, instance. I don't know what the policies are or if it's just individual cabbies to what individual cabbies want to do. I really don't know. But being left on side of the road, you know, you would think with a fare paid and a $50 clean-up fee, you know, the least they could do, because he's not going to have a chance to clean it up uh, right away anyway, is get him where they're going anyway, at the very least, even if there is a clean-up fee imposed. Absolutely, Patty. You know, leaving them – so so let's let's say this happens now in February, and you know, and we leave him on the side of the road, and, and, he's, and he's drunk, or some customer by themselves that doesn't have a sober partner with them is drunk and kicked out of the cab, and they freeze it in on the side of the road. I mean, seriously? You know, Patty, I drove cab with all three cab companies in Cornerbrook for three or four years. <clears throat> when I was in university and going back home, and when I was back home and needed a little part-time job, I drove taxi. And yes, a few threw up in my cab. And no, I didn't like it. But I never lost my mind, and I got them home safe. And yes, I had to clean it up. Now, we didn't have a cleanup fee, but there it is. You know, like, what are we going to do? It's, it's, it's licensed to kill now? You know, you get your cab license and then you can throw some out in the snowbank or on the side of the road on a Saturday night, you know, a couple of miles from home? This is not good enough. You know, fair enough. It's not good enough. We can follow up with the cab companies to see if they actually have a hard and fast policy that the public should be aware of or whether or not they leave it up to the, the druthers of uh, individual cab drivers. We'll do exactly that today. You know something, Patty? I really, really appreciate that. Uh, one other little quick one. I know you got lots on the queue. Uh, 
Uh, regards to the Minister of Health this morning making comments about the 40 patient cap to you, I never heard someone try so hard to not answer the question in my life. You know, we got doctors that are capped at 40 when they've got, you know, the, the potential of seeing 50 and 60 a day. My friend who's a GP goes in at 5 a.m. in the morning and will work till late and then and see people at home in the evening do his home calls. You know, how many people are doing that? We've got people here that are want to see their patients, and and the government is making it difficult for them to do it. So I don't know what to say anymore, right? I could only ask twice. At some point, it's just well, worth moving on. Like, if I'm a patient, and even if my preference is to see a doctor in person, but the only option available to me today is to see a doctor virtually, then I don't know why I can't. You know, supposing I'm 41 in the queue, why can't I have that appointment on, on a day-to-day basis as opposed to have to wait to reinstate the 40 cap tomorrow? I, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it you know what i i, I couldn't either and i mean uh, you know just just didn't even try to answer the question and answered it with another i don't i don't even know what he was talking about now i was i was like really wow you know like and so there it is but uh uh you know that if that's the way they're going to treat us guess what uh, I've, uh, you know, I've voted Liberal a long time, but I won't be voting it this time. If that's the, if that's the, if they think that that the voting public is that stunned, right? Well, there's a shock coming, boys, because there's enough of this. Like, start start answering the questions. I mightn't like the answer, but tell me the truth, please. Appreciate the time, Rod. We'll follow up with the taxi business. Patty, once again, thanks, man, and uh, you have a good day. You too. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And before we get to the break, we'll get a response to that particular call from line number four. Alan, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Okay, you? Oh, best comment. Uh, just think about pressure. Now, uh, in response to that guy, um, uh, taxi, you throw up in a taxi, that driver is off for the rest of the night. He's not going to make no money. And he is more, he can charge you. And you think Uber will not charge if you get sick of the taxi or in their car? God knows you. They will. And they can put you in the taxi at any time for any reason at all. So like, the ca- not racial or something like that, right? But it means if you're drunk or being a, being a real idiot or something, right? You can, they can, and will pitch at her. So, as a cab driver, is there an actual standing policy that the company wide, or is it whatever the driver sees um, fit? As such, the actual policy is roughly cost about fifty dollars to get the car cleaned up. Okay. Have you ever encountered that particular circumstance? Oh yes, yep, first more than once. So, in your case, so if someone got sick in your cab and you wanted to charge them an additional fifty bucks, do you actually drive them to their destination or stop right there and out they go? Um, depending. Uh, technically, I would not throw them out, but if they were being idiots, I probably would. Right. Fair enough. I, I appreciate the time. So you're actively cabin right now, are you? Oh, yeah. Pastor in the car, actually. Good man. Uh, I appreciate the uh, the follow-up call. Oh, no problem. Thanks, Alan. Okay, buddy. Have a good one. You too, buddy. Uh, Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think a fee for cleanup, I understand that. But getting them where they're going as opposed to the side of the road at 2 o'clock in the morning is another part of the conversation. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the working group struck to talk about the transformation of policing here in the province, virtual care, drinking water, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes. Yeah, Patty, uh, before I get to my topic, I just want to give a big shout-out to our, our Mount Pearl Blades. And uh, yesterday they presented a check for, uh, I've got the exact amount in front of me, but it was uh, 
north of $14,000 that they collected through their Hockey with a Heart uh, fundraiser, and they presented it to our uh, three local food banks, to which St. Vincent Paul and, of course, the Salvation Army. So uh, a big shout-out and good on them for uh, no, not just being a great hockey organization and providing hockey for our kids, but also teaching important life lessons as well. Bravo to the Blades. Absolutely. Patty, um, I, I just wanted to comment, I guess, on uh, Minister Osborne's call. I, I actually uh, had intended on calling on this topic anyway before he called. I'm uh, glad I had a chance to listen to him because I did have some concerns and some of the questions that you asked. I'm very pleased to hear uh, that this is, I guess, uh, sort of a temporary measure in one regard, uh, um, you know, in, in, and they're going to continue to recruit to get these healthcare teams so that everybody or, or most everybody at least will have an actual physical uh, physician or someone that they can they can see. Uh, but I also understand that it could be, you know, a, a supplemental service beyond that. And personally, you know, I, I don't have an issue with the fact that if I need to get a prescription filled or I had some mild, you know, mild uh, ailment or something like that, I uh, need the doctor's nose or just had the cold and wanted to get some uh, antibiotics or something. I, I, I personally don't have an issue with being able to go online or pick up the phone or something like that and not clog up uh, offices and not clog up emergencies. So I can see where there would be a future, a future for such a subject, but it can't replace my ability to see a doctor when I have something more significant than I need to see one. And that's what I heard Minister Osborne say, is that that is not the intention, that won't be the case. So uh, I was pleased to at least hear that. Sure, and not be nitpicking, but folks, given the fact there's World Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness Week, if you have a cold, please don't ask your doctor for an antibiotic, because antibiotics do not deal with viral infections. It's a bacterial issue, so do not ask for an antibiotic if you simply have a cold. There you go. There you go. Um, but but anyway, I, I was pleased to hear it. Now uh, I will say that I uh, one thing I wasn't um, uh, I was a bit disappointed is that you never got a an answer to the issue around Medicuro and perhaps there's privacy issues or whatever in place that would prevent him from saying that. But I sure would like to know. And I, I mean, look, I understand you put out an RFP and there's certain criteria had to be met and it was reviewed. He said by a fairness uh, person and all that good stuff. Uh, I, I get all that, uh, and I understand how RFPs work. But I wouldn't want us to be in a like, for example, if there was a bunch of deliverables there, and the company who got the award could deliver 100%, and for argument's sake, uh, Medicuro could couldn't deliver 100%, but but they could deliver 90% or 95% and they were going to do it at one-third the cost, and I would like to know that, and I would like to know exactly what it is that they couldn't do that the other company would do. So the minister is obviously not going to tell us. Uh, I don't know, uh, perhaps once Dr. Young, uh, he said they're going, to meet, they're, they're going to meet with them to discuss where he went wrong in his uh, bid. Maybe he will uh, let us know, because he did let us know that he didn't get the contract and that he could have done it a lot cheaper. So maybe he'll come on at some future date to let us know exactly what the issues were because I think given the fact we're going to spend so much money and we're going to spend triple the cost I think we have a right to understand why we're doing this. 
Well, I mean, I can't speak for Dr. Young, but I'm going to guess if he's got information to share, he will, because there's a bunch of things. You know, it's one-third the cost. It's a local company versus an American-based company like the Butch's Teladoc. So I'd really like to know where, where the shortcomings were, what boxes weren't checked, whether it be with fairness or every item that was offered in the RFP. So I, I'd really want to know more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And as a taxpayer, we're the ones footing the bill for this, so... I think, you know, I understand we can't necessarily have all the details. I understand privacy, but given the fact that we're going to be paying such a hefty sum for this and, and triple the cost, uh, I wouldn't want, you know, again, I wouldn't want us to, I can understand if, you know, he clearly couldn't do the job, but if we were only nitpicking a couple of things here and there and that's why he didn't get it, then that would be uh, significant information that we should know, I, I believe, as as public Patty, the only final thing I just wanted to throw in there, I, I I was really confused by the answer we were getting on that cap as well, and I heard you discuss it with Roger just then. What I surmised from it, and I, I could be totally out to lunch, but what I was hearing at least was that, um, if, that if they didn't have a cap, then perhaps physicians would say, okay, uh, I can do a lot more virtually than I can in person. So all this cancel all my in-persons, do everything virtually, and uh, then I could see more people and make more money. And he didn't want that to happen. Now, th- maybe that's that's me. That's what I heard. Uh, I don't know because it was very confusing and unclear. But I'm, I'm wondering if that's what it is. I don't know, but I mean. The math is cr- pretty clear here. If I don't see that patient tomorrow because they're number 41, or if I don't see them today because they're number 41, I see them tomorrow. So I still put in the billing. So even even if it is an issue regarding uh, money going out the door covered by MCP, eventually if that person wants to see a doctor v- via a virtual appointment, they're going to. Today, tomorrow, next week, whatever the case may be. Even if they don't, they're going to go see the doctor in person. They're still going to be billing at MCP. So I wouldn't understand the mathematical hesitancy because that person's going to see a doctor virtually or in person at some point? 100%, 100%. But I think I, I think what they were saying, I think what he was getting at is that they want to have, I don't think he wants to get into a situation where all the family doctors now that would be seeing people in person all decided, hey, I'm better off just to see everybody virtually and then nobody can actually see a physical doctor because nobody wants to do it. Everyone's going everyone's gonna to do it online. I, I, that, that may be it. I, I don't know. And like I said, it was very unclear to me. Uh, but I, I would li- I would have liked a little bit better clarification. But anyway, I guess at the end of the day, uh, my main concern was addressed by the minister and the fact that uh, uh, this is a supplemental service. It's a stopgap measure, uh, and it's not meant to replace uh, seeing a family doctor. And we certainly have the public. We have to keep the pressure on government in terms of ensuring they continue to recruit and retain healthcare professionals because, uh, you know, as I said, minor ailments is one thing, but when people have serious concerns, they need to physically see a doctor, and we need to make sure that we accept nothing less in this problem. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Have you a too. great day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Paul Lane, of course, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. Let's go to line number two. Simeon, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, uh, Patty. Morning to you. Um, I just want to touch base on the uh, the water problem that we've been having uh, a number of good years in Narashish. Uh It's a brand, it's a new community, and there's supposed to be uh, a good, clean, clean drinking water in Narashish. Obviously, obviously, it's not a fact uh, today and for a number of years. 
Uh, as far as I can remember, when I was a band chief, I, I negotiated with Health Canada and uh, and federal government, uh, the feds uh, with the uh, with the feds, the Health Canada, including um, with the water problems, uh, the drinking water that we've been facing for, for for years. And today, it's it's gotten to the point where I think uh, that needs to be addressed. And uh, and right now, uh, it's on the news on CBC, I, I believe, not long ago. Um, about the water problems, that there's a lot of salt that's been uh, sucked into from the water pump, uh, from the uh, pumping station, from uh, from the river, and I believe the the salt water has gone through the uh, where where the where, where the pump uh, where they pump where we pump our cleaning drinking water, and today uh, I believe there was a water bottle a water bottle has been flown to Naroshi for to drink water. And uh, the problem today that we face now with people with kids who have eczema and people uh, trying to uh, to do their laundry, obviously that's that's not transpired, that's not happening. And I'm very disappointed in federal government today and breaching their own obligation uh, under the fiduciary responsibility uh, to the to that Inuit community. Uh, I reside in Shadid because uh, for my medical uh, problems, and uh, today I just want to uh, uh, mention uh, or, or uh, bring the awareness to Health Canada or health officials or anybody else who's involved with uh, with the Aboriginal uh, with the Inu community of Nadoshish. Because the fact is that uh, there's ongoing problems with with the salt that's been pumped, uh, that's been going through the to the town, and federal government has not stepped in to to correct the problem to assist the uh, the uh, the reservation of Nadoshish under the fiduciary obligations. And I believe uh, I believe in my own in my own small head or small brain, whatever you can call it. Uh, I'm not original. I may be stupid, but I'm not that stupid. But I believe that they have a fiduciary responsibility, and they have breached their responsibility, their obligation. The Crown has breached, uh, breached the, uh, the the fiduciary responsibility because under the Crown, when the Crown breaches this fiduciary duty, they are liable to uh, to the Indigenous groups in any in, in any province of Canada. And and some extent that uh, such a trust will uh, affect the fiduciary relationship between the crown and the uh, the indigenous people. Uh, to them, have, they have breached willfully, and it's not they are not justified to to say we have done everything what we can. But that's not good enough. That's not really good enough, and that's that's a national disgrace, very disrespectful, and not following their own law. So what exactly is the repair required, or is it a replacement required? I think uh, the need, well, when I was a band chief, I negotiated with Health Canada, as I stated in my, my comments in earlier, that uh, that there was a problem. I noticed, we knew there was a problem with, with water, and we haven't, we haven't, can, we, we haven't can drink, we, we couldn't drink from the tap water for, for many years. And, uh, and that uh, they were supposed to move the uh, the pump uh, the, the hose up or further stream up on the river, but that's not been ha- that's not happened. I don't know what transpired after I left the, uh, the my public uh, life with uh, with my uh, band council with my band, and uh, that was about 
2013, I believe, or 2000 something. I don't know when 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 did I leave uh, politics, and uh, I'm very surprised they haven't really fixed the problem. And now today it's gone to the to the point where people are scrambling to take uh, to take their uh, clean, to have a clean clothes. Kids with eczema. I believe there's a couple couple people having medevac out from Narajuish to Goose Bay for. Uh, for for, uh, for for this water problem, I don't know what happened, but I could be wrong. I stand to be corrected, and that that needs to be addressed from health from Health Canada, including the uh, Indian Affairs Department, including the Prime Minister of Canada, to address the problem, the seriousness of a problem. I mean, you just can't treat people this way. I mean, Canada has taken the responsibility to be a trustees trustee of, of that uh, David Zenlet and also uh, Naroshi's reservation. And I'm very surprised and very, very dismayed what's been happening there. They're not doing anything about it. I'm not really sure what the ban, the ban council has done to uh, to alleviate, to, to correct the problem with the fed. I'm pretty, de- I'm pretty damn sure that they, they must have raised the problem, but probably reluctant from federal government to to address the problem and and probably saying well let them drink let them drink let them suffer more because we have suffered enough but i think if i if i was a band chief today i would probably file a class action uh, against the feds because sue them under their breaches and they are liable uh liable to the uh, liable the, to that community and, and and there's no two ways about it. Something needs to be done to correct the problem. And I, and I think uh, we need to. We, the people in Nairobi need to to drink the clean water, and they need to wash, take a shower, and they need to uh, uh, cook. You know all the all the necessities of life. That's that they want to do. You know, but you can't do it without without the uh, clean drinking water. Understood. And, and, and uh, I'm asking, uh, asking them to uh, what's going on. Understood, Simeon. I appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, policing working group. Talk away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Harbor, Maine. She's the justice and public safety critic. That's Helen Conway-Ottenheimer. And good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you. I wanted to uh, call in this morning just to weigh in on the uh, recent announcement by the Minister of Justice and Public Safety on this um, policing initiative that they, uh, that they have announced. It's got some serious concerns, uh, and I'll just highlight a, a couple right now. First of all, I think the the minister had indicated that this is going to this initiative is going to help shape the future of policing services in Newfoundland and Labrador. My first question on that is, how is that possible when you have essentially police investigating the police? Now, I'm not questioning the merits of the four individuals that will be on the panel. They certainly have plenty of experience in policing throughout our province. 
and of course we welcome their expertise. But we do not have the balance necessary in order to have an objective, impartial analysis of the current problems that are facing our uh, police forces in our province. Okay, so the concept of police, uh, investigating police, and even when we used to, if we're, you know, not talk about this working group, but we bring in the OPP and people didn't like that. Then there was a creation of the ser- serious incident response team, which I think was required, and some people don't like that. But inside this working group, if you're talking about additional voices, I mentioned it off the top of the show. I think when you have the entity that funds the police and only the police involved in this working group, maybe we're missing some outside voices. I think, you know, maybe the authors of the report from First Light would be a helpful voice with their recommendations to get some consideration to what they wrote. So who do you think should be included if you're not quite thrilled with the makeup of the working group as it stands? So as you stated in your preamble, and of course the working group from First Voice would be an excellent addition to the panel. And I believe that it's a missed opportunity for government and for the police leadership to learn from these experts, because we only have to look at this extensive report that was released back in October by the working group. It was comprehensive, 18 months of research and analysis. They had widespread Uh, support throughout the community. Many organizations and community um, entities weighed in uh, with respect to this report. So that it would be definitely a starting point to have some representation from uh, First Voice. And what's concerning to me about this, uh, Patty, is that uh, they virtually have been ignored. And I raise this uh, on behalf of the opposition uh, many times in the House of Assembly. The fact that uh, the Minister of Justice and the Department were non-committal. They were virtually silent, really, when it comes to responding to the many recommendations, the 26 recommendations. And so, you know, the fact that this important group feels virtually ignored by the government is very concerning. And I, I quite frankly don't understand it. They're missing a great opportunity here. You know, some of the... The requirement for this type of review, I think, is very real. So whether it be the optics of how policing is uh, executed in this province and or the relationship between the general public and law enforcement, which has changed for the worse, whether it be what we see elsewhere in the country or clear examples here in this province or what we see on cable news coming from the United States, the requirement to have that mutually beneficial relationship of community policing and trust in the integrity of law enforcement is critically important. So if that's one of the outcomes here based on whatever changes and whatever people think is community policing and what it means to them, I just hope that something comes from it as opposed to simply another governmental exercise. And that's what I fear, and that, that was my initial reaction, quite frankly. Is this another, uh, for perhaps pre-election government announcement, another public relations exercise, a ticking of the box? Because when I look at the terms of reference, for example, we don't see an end date on this initiative. Uh, we know it's a multi-year project, and we need immediate attention for some of these very concerning challenges and issues that face uh, our police forces. So we need action on that. But there's no end date. That, that, I, I question that. As, as I've referenced, the composition of the working group, that to me uh, doesn't, make, doesn't cut it. And then when we look at police oversight, I mean, that is, again, goes fundamentally to the question of police 
uh, investigating themselves. So we need to have civilian police oversight. There's no question. In fact, we are one of the few pol uh, police or forces in the country without a police services board. And yet we can't get a commitment from the Minister of Justice on that. So, I mean, that is an important challenge that we're seeing within our own police forces, and uh, there's no response. And then the other thing is the police complaint system, Patty. That has been faulted. I mean, there's serious issues with the, the police complaint system as it exists. It's convoluted. It's complex. Uh, the process to adjudicate complaints, it is um, kept secret or secretive in a sense. It's behind closed doors. It's not where it was rarely open to the public. And so there's a call for public transparency and openness. And then we have lengthy de delays in the decision-making. And then when we look at who makes a decision, we see that the chief of police is left with uh, a lot of power over the discipline process. The vast majority of the complaints are essentially dismissed by the chief. So there's, you know, concern there that there's an inherent conflict of interest that exists. So we see all of these issues that need to uh, be addressed. And when I see this initiative, I'm quite disappointed uh, in, in how it's played out. It's interesting that there's even reference to, uh, like Minister Hogan saying, do, he does not foresee a future with only one law enforcement agency here, and obviously that would be the RNC. And I wonder how they're going to evaluate policing and a policing model when we talk about the expansion for the RNC's geographical footprint, when we talk about all the vacancies inside the RCMP, and they have a job drive going at this very moment, as a matter of fact, because numbers and the strain on human resources have a direct impact on the model of delivery. So I just wonder how they incorporate those two items uh, in addition to civilian oversight and whatnot. I don't know why law enforcement would be hesitant to go down the civilian oversight road because one surefire way for people to have restored faith in law enforcement is if there's a civilian oversight component. It would inevitably, I think, be good for law enforcement. You know, the good, quality, professional, dedicated officers, they want the people who are the so-called bad apples rooted out. They want the general public to know that they are committed to do their job professionally day in and day out, and the civilian oversight board would bring that air of... Exactly that. Oversight to the RNC and or the RCMP. So I don't necessarily get, I think it's a bit of a misread of the public temperature here. If you incorporate that uh, level of oversight, I think people would just immediately feel different about policing. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating, but that's how I would feel. I think that's dead on. And, uh, you know, going to that point, we all know the extremely important work difficult work and dangerous sometimes in, under dangerous circumstances that the police have to do their jobs. But doesn't it make their job even more difficult when the public trust is eroded and when we don't have that confidence or, or that, that um, you know, support? And we know, I mean, that, uh, you know, there are the vast majority from what we're hearing in terms of the people in the province, you know, have, have some concerns about uh, the trust uh, element and, and with the police. So surely this kind of engagement with all community organizations would only further um, enhance the public trust and confidence in our policing, I would think. I appreciate the time this morning, Helen. Thank you for this. And thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Helen Conway-Ottenheimer. She's the shadow critic for Justice and Public Safety, and of course, the PC member for Harbor, Maine. Let's take a break. We've heard in the news uh, uh, surrounding, once again, virtual care, and some of the organizations and entities that have questions and or concerns about it. One such group is the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, their president, Yvette Coffey, right after this. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of NL. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. So, of course, virtual care is a big conversation inside the delivery of health care in this province and the expansion that we've now understood, the two-year contract with Teladoc. You say that it's basically dropping standards. Elaborate on that for me. Well, the golden standard is and will always be an in-person hands-on assessment of any patient or client virtual care can work if you have the right supports in place you need to have someone there who's doing the assessment and actually telling the nurse practitioner or the family physician um, what their findings are just like we do in the hospital registered nurses assess patients uh, on a daily basis they're the ones who report to doctors uh, or nurse practitioners and say hey this is going on I need you to come and assess the patient um, the fear here is that there won't be the proper supports in place there won't actually be anyone there with hands-on on these patients and even with that the person who is diagnosing and prescribing or ordering tests or treatment should have hands-on on that patient and should be sitting in front of them and actually having a chat with them because there are things that can get missed in a virtual conversation and i can't even talk about telephone conversations because everything is going you know anything gets missed in a telephone conversation because you're only talking about one thing uh so that's our stance the gold standard is in-person, hands-on. If the government of the day says that recognizing or acknowledging that is the gold standard, but the unfortunate reality is for many parts of the province, there isn't that doctor to perform the gold standard. So they talk at, you know, whether it be stopgap or complementary, what have you. So if you don't have a doctor, is virtual care better than no care? Because there is a, a tangent or, pardon me, a bit of in-person triage here. You, I guess you see a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner or advanced care paramedic. So in your estimation, is it a matter of eroding the gold standard and maybe seeing virtual care expand beyond where it currently is? Or do you think a virtual care doctor is better than no doctor at all? Virtual care is a stock gap measure. However, the comments that came out in the media from Dr. Parfrey um, is that this is the way of the future. That's not acceptable uh, for us. Uh, I don't think it's acceptable for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, at the end of the day, government should be concentrating and continue to concentrate on the recruitment and retention of all nursing professionals, including physicians, nurse practitioners, registered nurses, LPNs, psychologists, who have you. And the goal is supposed to be, and has always been with Health Accord NL and recommendations, is primary health care teams. Um, virtual care, I can guarantee you right now, it will not always have the supports in place because we have a shortage of other healthcare professionals right now. We have a very limited supply of um, advanced care paramedics. We have a very limited supply of registered nurses in this province and a very limited supply of nurse practitioners. And it wouldn't be a nurse practitioner doing an assessment to talk to a physician. A nurse practitioner practices autonomously. They don't report to a physician. So it would be the registered nurse or the ACP who would actually be 
giving their findings to the nurse practitioner or the physician. So there are some contradictions out there. You know, for instance, we were told at the press conference that virtual care is here to stay and that primary care teams are still the priority. But, you know, you can't have it both ways, I would suggest to the government. So it's either it's not necessarily one or the other. But the minister responsible this morning on this program said that they're actively still going to move towards those. I think it's 35 collaborative care clinics or family care clinics. And as a result, if they get to that intended goal, maybe virtual care gets reduced and there won't be a third year option for Teladoc. So do you think that that's just cockeyed optimism or do you take the minister at his word? Well, that is what the health court recommendation uh, was when I was there on the task force, that we do go to 35 family care collaborative clinics. Um, and what I mean, they're giving mixed messages. Is it that or is it virtual care is here to stay? And I would argue if virtual care is here to stay, are people of Newfoundland and Labrador not getting the gold standards and that government needs to be investing more to ensure that they are getting the treatment that they need and deserve. In the world, before we run out of time, in the world of recruiting, retaining registered nurses, you know, I'm not exactly sure how successful we were in India. And then there was some confusion about whether or not uh, Indian nurses could get their visas approved here upon arrival. So where are we? You know, the number that you and I've been using is 750 vacancies. The minister says that's been reduced. You say what? Well, if it's been reduced, they haven't given us the evidence to say that. We've been asking for the nursing uh, vacancy report now since 1st of October when it was due, and they've yet to uh, produce that document. Uh, they say they're working on it. I don't know what working on it means. Numbers are numbers. Uh, and the last time we asked in the spring, it was the same thing. So I have concerns about that document. Um, I do know I have had discussions with NL Health Services leadership who are heavily involved with the um, recruitment of internationally educated nurses from India. And we all know that there's been global tensions between Canada and India that has delayed because uh, some of the visas and everything were cancelled. There were plans and... I'm speaking on behalf of Anna Health Services, so I think you should be talking to them to get a better picture of this, but this is the information we've been given, that they were doing uh, planning on-the-ground interviews and making sure that people had the credentials to become registered nurses in Newfoundland and Labrador. That got postponed and changed to a virtual option, so they weren't really get, you know, getting the full piece uh, deal there. Uh, that work has continued, but because of the delays, we're not going to see um, upwards of 300 is the number they've been using on the ground here. I will say uh, there's already 95 here uh, or more in the system, and we're having big issues because the orientation, uh, not only to our healthcare system um, and our policies and procedures, but also to um, Newfoundland culture, temp you know, global temperatures and everything. Um, it wasn't done right, that's what I have to say. Uh, there's a recognition there that there needed to be a more comprehensive orientation um, for these registered nurses. Some of them, most of them actually, are working as licensed practical nurses or PCAs um, and having to go through the college for to get uh, to bridge to get more training or clinical to get them up to where they can be licensed as a registered nurse in Newfoundland and Labrador. So there have been issues. There are plans in place now to have, I think it's nine educators throughout uh, Newfoundland and Labrador um, devoted or dedicated to uh, the orientation and support of internationally educated nurses, which is a good thing. 
Um, but there, there are issues and there are concerns. And I don't think we can expect someone coming into our system to hit the ground running. And I've been saying that from day one. So having a vacancy filled on paper is one thing. Having someone on the ground who's actually in the position is another. Yeah, now the processing of visas for Indian nurses and other Indian citizens has resumed and hopefully that will see the backlog cleared up as quick as possible. And very interestingly, nothing to do with registered nurses, all of those tensions because of the accusation by the Prime Minister that an Indian agent assassinated a Sikh separatist in B.C. just today coming from the United States, the Americans say they have thwarted an assassination attempt of a Sikh separatist in their country. So it's all very interesting. The overlaps are very real. Uh, last one, I promise you that. So last time we talked, we talked about how many registered nurses have taken the government up on their offer to expand their scope of practice. You know, with the uh, writing of prescriptions, referral to specialists, what have you. I think the number you told me last time was three. Has that changed? I think there's upwards of 20 now who have actually, um, maybe 12. Uh, 12, I think, uh, who are actually going through the IRM prescribing. Um, they're all in Labrador. Um they have decided, uh, the plan right now with Anna Health Services is to see how this goes, do an evaluation of it. Uh, and they've also put in, you know, for funding to pay these registered nurses who are doing these programs. Uh, and there's going to have to be, of course, an evaluation, a job evaluation, right? Uh, because now you have increased scope. Um, so once they're finished and completed, there will be an evaluation done of the process and how it went and how it's working before they uh, actually enter into having any more registered nurses. I do know there's approximately, I think it's 100 who have um, said that they're interested in doing this. Of course, it all has to be approved by NL Health Services. So it has to be a joint effort between the registered nurse and the employer who then go to the college uh, for to start that process. As for recruitment, I do know this is hot off the press. As of November the 16th, the come home year incentive, um, 43 RNs uh, with start dates varying and no MPs. Uh, the MP incentive for family care teams, 31 MPs have accepted thus far. Um, but I am hearing that they, they've accepted, and they've accepted a while ago, but they still haven't seen any money from the incentives that were offered. Um, the long-term care one seems to be the biggest uh, one that was productive, and 67 RNs, including MPs, 141 LPNs and 187 PCAs accepted uh, the long-term care recruitment bonus, which I think is a good thing for long-term care. Good, good, uh, always good to hear some progress being made. And appreciate the time as usual, Yvette. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Yvette Coffey is the president of the Registered Nurses Union. Now, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, November 25th is International Day Against Violence, uh, Against Violence Against Women. The minister responsible for that portfolio is Pam Parsons. She's up next, and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number five. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Harbour Grace, Porto Grave. She's the minister responsible for women and gender equality. That's Pam Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, it's, it's certainly great to be on your show, and certainly thanks for making the time to talk about the very important Purple Ribbon campaign 
Um, I think you and I have this chat annually, and, it, and I think we both agree that it's a chat that we need to have, and it's a conversation that we need to have pretty much every day um, until, you know, we do what we can to reduce and ultimately eliminate gender-based gender violence. Um, so as you know, the Purple Ribbon Flag Raising Proclamation Signing Event, it will mark the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which is known, of course, as the Purple Ribbon Campaign. This is an international campaign, and it actually started back in 1991, and ultimately to call out and speak up against gender-based violence, um, and of course to renew our commitment as a, gov as, as a government to ending violence against women, girls, and the two SLGBTQQIA plus individuals. So I just want to extend the inv invitation for tomorrow. Um, it certainly is open to the public. Uh, it begins at 10.30 a.m., and of course it's happening at the Confederation Building, East Block. So we're welcoming, opening this to the public. I'm going to be joined by some advocates, well-known advocates in our area, Debbie Hibbs, of course, Lisa Lake, and Gemma Hickey, who will also share their stories of lived experiences. Um, and also, attendees, we're encouraging them to bring brightly colored flowers in memory of those who've lost their lives or who have been impacted by gender-based violence. Yeah, these 16 days of activism began all the way back in 1991, and one of the key focus areas for much of the country, of course, is remembering the 14 women who died in Montreal on December the 6th of 1989. Uh, so what specifically, what policies and programs are in place to try to deal with the prevalence of domestic violence against women and young girls? Because we see the court dockets, it's happened far too frequently in this province. So give us some specifics of what we're, what we're trying to attempt to do to curb the amount of DVs we see. Well, many initiatives have taken place. Um, I'll just jog our memory back a few years, actually. Um, there was a four-year plan with 64 actions, um, and that was called Working Together for Violence-Free Communities. 96% of those actions were completed, and 4% are ongoing. Um, and, of course, since I've been in MHA, I mean, I've been in the House Assembly, and I'm happy to say that we've passed a lot of great legislation um, to do that, you know, to work against gender-based violence, prevention, awareness. Um, something recently that we've done I'm really proud of, and this, of course, uh, is in alignment with the missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls, and that was the establishment of an Indigenous Women's Reconciliation Council to ultimately to direct a range of policies that are aimed at implementing the calls for justice by the National Inquiry into the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And this is historic, Patty. Um, I also attended an FPT, Federal Provincial Territorial Meeting, this past summer, where I met with colleagues across the country. And we're actually the first in Newfoundland and Labrador to have such a council in place where Indigenous women from our province um, that compose the steering committee are working with government officials on this committee uh, to ultimately to do what we can to implement the best policy and to advise of the best policy. Um, some other things that we've done and implemented improvements to occupational health and safety regulations, and those those include provisions to address workplace harassment and worker-on-worker -worker violence. Another important one is the updated Family Violence Protection Act. And, Patty, that broadens the definition of violence, which is, is very important. Um, and expanding this, this, this definition to include psychological, emotional, and financial harm conveyed uh, the importance of recognizing these forms of violence. Another one is the bail supervision and electronic monitoring program to help lower levels of, you know, reacting those crimes again and improve safety for women. So interpersonal violence disclosure, as you know, Claire's Law was just, uh, we had passed that some years ago. And as we know now, that has, that's going to be implemented as well. Um, the Protection of Images Act, um, Internet Images Act. So those, those are just a number of changes that we're doing. Changes to Residential Tenancies Act as well to allow for early termination of a rental agreement 
in the cases for domestic violence. So if someone is experiencing domestic violence, they don't have to worry about that lease, you know, or, or you know, that they're, the agreement that they have with their landlord um, so that, that can be forgiven, so they can ex- escape this. And also another one that I'll mention is the changes to the Labor Standards Act, allowing, allowing victims of family violence to take a total of 10 days of leave um, if they're experiencing such violence. So lots of ongoing initiatives. I want to throw a bouquet to stakeholders in our communities as well, across Newfoundland and Labrador. As we know, they are the experts on the front lines that help the people who need these services the most. And as Minister Responsible for Women and Gender Equality, I'm really proud and happy to do to do, do my part to help provide them the resources they need to do, these, to do this very important work. We appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Pam Parsons, the PC, or pardon me, the Liberal member, pardon me, for Harbour Grace, Port of Grave, and the Minister Responsible for Women and Gender Equality. Let's go get a response to our chat with uh, Yvette Coffey at the Registered Nurses Union with John on one. John, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I've talked to you before uh, about this issue. Uh, my spouse and I moved back, uh, you know, because of this, uh, partially because we have elder, uh, older parents that need to be taken care of. But also to come back and 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 help our you know the community that we that, that we love and we grew up in and we love and we just had to get back here. She came back during the, uh, two years ago, I guess, when they announced you know the all the programs for um, uh, the come home year incentives and all that kind of stuff. And what my spouse has been dealing with or dealt with for a year, she's she's uh, doing something else now because she just couldn't break into the system. My spouse has over 25 years in the mental health uh, in the mental health realm. Um, she's a she's a registered nurse, but what she was finding was that all the positions uh, that that would become available. Um, they had to go out. Uh, they had to had to go out internally first um, to see if any any of the other nurses wanted to switch their job and, uh, and and you know take on this new post. So there's this delay when they post these jobs that that become available. Um, and then when at one point we spoke to um, I spoke to the uh, minister of health. And he said, well, you know, the reason why there's all these casual jobs is because nurses don't want full-time jobs anymore. So we are creating these casual positions so that, you know, to meet their needs. So I guess my, what I see is the nurses' union blames the government. The government blames the nurses' union. <laughs> and they're, they're, not, they're not speaking on the same page. Uh, what I'm hearing from from nurses within the system is that they're all burned out, right? They're they're being asked to work too much and and all this kind of stuff. So the only solution to that is to bring more nurses in. It's fine and dandy to say we're going to bring brand new nurses from India and Ireland or wherever you can get them, but what about the nurses that they're in trying to entice back? Nurses with experience, how do they fit into the system? Because the nurses that are in Newfoundland and Labrador have all the positions tied up and there's no room for experienced nurses to come back and practice in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And I see that as a nurses union's uh, uh, problem as much as it is uh, a government problem. How so? Because the union, of course, is a representative body as opposed to an entity that actually hires or places nurses. So how do you see it as a union concern? I'm just curious. 
Right, because so the union, the unions are the advocates for for the workers, right? I mean, that's 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 what they do. So if nurses, if they're trying to protect these positions for nurses internally, nurses that are already working here in the province, if they're putting these, you know, if they say, oh, we have a job here that's going to, we need a new nurse in this facility doing this. But we can't post it externally yet. We have to post it internally. So there's an inherent delay right off the bat. Okay. And then I and then I hear all these stories about okay, well they're they're going to open this position and this nurse is going to go over there for the time being, but they're going to hold her position over here, and they're just going to make it a temporary position. So somebody, if they want some temporary work, they can come in and fill in for this nurse over here while she goes over and does this job at a higher rate of pay. It's you know it's and I don't want to say I don't want to say greed. I know the nurses are overworked and they're underpaid. I totally get it. And you do what you can to put bread on the table and to make to make the best of of your efforts and and and, and your work. But at some point, the nurses' unions got to say, look, we got to stop this. You know. Uh, Workers, and I, I saw this in, in, in the Department of National Defense as well. You know, if you see a job over there, and that looks better. So you jump over there, and you take that job, and you're there for four months. You said, ah, this is not all I thought it was going to be. So then another job comes up, and then you jump over to that one. And it's just this constant catch-up of, you know, it's, uh, you know, trying to fill the gaps. And if, if we keep playing those games, you'll never get experienced nurses to come back and move to Newfoundland and Labrador and practice. Fair enough. I guess that moving a nurse to a job in a temporary fashion is all about the whole protection of the already dues-paying members and the seniority issue and, and related matters. So I completely understand your point. The goal should always be, if there's a gap, we fill it. If that means some required bending as opposed to breaking, we do it. Because what's ultimately good for the nurses that are currently practicing on the floor, stressed out, overworked, the, if there was more nurses in the system experienced or otherwise, their concerns would be illegal. Alleviated, not dismissed, but alleviated. So I completely understand where you're coming from, John. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning? No, that, that's just it. I mean, I, I think this is. I, you know, I, I just I don't I don't like it when the, when union leaders come on and say this is oh well you'll have to ask the government that you'll have to ask the government that. I'm living this. My spouse is living this. So so you know, don't come to me and say that the problems are all with. The government. That's that's my only problem, and I'd like to I, I'd like to hear what uh, what the what the nurses union leader is, uh, has to say about that. I can put it on my list for the next time we speak, which inevitably won't be too long from now, because there's ongoing nursing conversations that we're happy to have on the show, and I'm glad you added this to the pile. Thank you very much. Have Thank you, John. Day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some uh, housing solutions for the transient community in Labrador. Juan's also in the queue, and then time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Juan. You're on the air. Oh, um, uh, hey, Patty. Good, uh, I see good morning. Thanks um, uh, for taking my call. Uh, there's been um, uh, many... Uh, very important, um, you know, topics that uh, you've been dealing with, um, you know, today and everything. And I want to commend you on such a, an incredible job you do. But um, if I could just take a few minutes um, uh, and take the conversation just into a slightly, um, I mean, a different direction. I just wanted to give um, uh, uh, a very strong uh, confidence 
compliment and recommendation to um, a restaurant that my wife and I uh, have been looking forward to, um, uh, you know, visiting for a very long time, and it finally happened a couple weeks ago. And that restaurant uh, is Boca um, in in downtown. St. John's. I actually, um, I'm looking at their website right now. Um, you have to sort of really uh, be on the on the lookout, um, you know, for them. They have an address at 189 Water Street, but the entrance is actually around the side. And if you were not actually looking for it. Um, you would see this door, <laughs> you know, just a plain wooden door. You would think, wow, you know, it must be like a hole in the wall or something. But it is um, a wonderful place. I'd like to say that um, uh, what I had, we, we went there uh, for a late lunch, and uh, I would like to say that it was probably um, the best, meal in a restaurant that I have had, um, you know, during the time that I had been up here. I've, I mentioned before, um, my wife and I, we split our time between North Carolina and here, but um, I had their, um, it's called the, the Greg's Chicken Sandwich and the Margarita Flatbread, and it was incredible. So, um, okay. I would be greatly saddened, um, you know, if, if, if this restaurant was was ever not to be there. And I'm not saying that, that I know anything about, uh, um, you know, its future or, or anything like that. But with the holidays coming up, people coming into town, you know, people looking maybe for a meal, I would highly recommend this. So. I'm sure they'll appreciate your rave review of the goings-on and the food at Boca. It is quite nice. It's a lovely restaurant. Uh, glad you enjoyed it, Juan. Thanks for the time this morning. Okay, great. Have Take, a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye. <laughs> there you go. A little restaurant review. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Graham Morehouse. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. My name is Graham Morehouse, and I'm calling from Goose Bay. I'd like to talk about... Uh, the housing hub that they're going to build here for the homeless people that have accumulated in Goose Bay. Uh, recently, we've all received in our post office boxes a, a pamphlet from uh, the Health of um, Newfoundland Labrador Housing uh, about this multi-million dollar building that they're going to build and all the facilities that they're going to be in it, are going to put in it. And it seems to me that when the province is just about broke, spending all this money for something that uh, probably already exists or could already exist in part. Now, the provincial government are talking about spending all these millions. The federal government are just about next year, I believe, to knock down a load of accommodation on the five-wing base. And that accommodation, we've already lost an awful lot of accommodation up on the base. I think they knocked down, they knocked down six, or six, six or seven buildings that the RAF used to use um, just this past year. There's 240, roughly, uh, bedrooms there that, uh, that went. Now, the, the German 
when I say German, I mean the German Air Force or, or the German government, um, have got six buildings, which you can probably house 40 people in each, and a central admin building. And it seems to me if they're going to... D&D are going to spend probably half a billion dollars. I don't really know, but I'll estimate that. Knocking the, the buildings down. And here's the provincial government just up the road building accommodation for the homeless people. Now, a lot of people would say, um, well, it's on a base, it's on five wing, but as you probably know, I'm sure you've been to Goose Bay, uh, it's a very open base. You have to drive, everybody drives through the base to get up to the airport. The buildings I'm talking about are outside the secure, secure fence, and uh, there's a history. D&D have sold some of those buildings to commercial companies, who operate up there now. There's hundreds of people live, civilian, well, a lot of civilians who live up on the base housing that, that, there. And these buildings I'm talking about, you know, it's not, it's not as if the Canadian government paid a lot of money for them. I believe they bought the whole side of the base where the accommodation and uh, storage and hangars are from the Americans for a dollar. So, you know, there's not a lot of money involved other than trying to knock the buildings down when they could be used um, quite easily uh, by an organisation who's going to look after the homeless. Now, there's also, in, in this central admin or organisation building, there's a fully equipped kitchen, there's basements and a tunnel right under all seven buildings uh, for ease of communication and uh, transport during the during the winter, it just seems such a waste of money to knock them down, knock buildings down just down the road and be building uh, new places uh, in in the valley or between Happy Valley and Goose Bay. It sounds like a classic left hand, right hand, not knowing what each other's doing or trying to accomplish. Fair point that you're making here, Gray, and I'm glad you're doing it. And you know, you talk about spending. Uh, not so long ago, Defence Minister Anita Anand was at Five Wing Goose Bay talking about Canada's commitment to, uh, I can't remember the number exactly, but I think it was around 38 or $39 billion over the course of the next 20 years to modernize uh, Canada's NORAD commitments, which includes almost $16 billion worth of infrastructure, some of which is going to be spent at Five Wing Goose. Yeah, that is unusual. D&D have knocked down a lot more buildings than they've put up. And the accommodation here has really been, you know, cut tremendously. I don't, if we ever had to move troops through Goose Bay, I mean, it used to hold, you used to have 7,000 people on base. Mm -hmm, Right. Yeah. I mean, it's nowhere near that now. And And to get rid of these buildings when they can be used, when there's an alternative use for them, it just seems so ridiculous. You, you probably, you've been to Goose Bay, you've driven past those buildings. You probably remember seeing, you might remember seeing the German flag on some of them. I have. Yeah. Uh, whether you ever used the German um, restaurant that was there, I mean, that was a, a fully equipped kitchen that, that's still there. Uh, but uh, anyway... Um, or just as another example about getting on base and how the base is used, the, the town hospital used to be right in the middle of the base and people got there, you know, whenever they had to see the doctor or whatever. Um, 
So it seems to me it's on the main road to the airport, to the actual airport building. Um, it seems a no-brainer, let's say, to me, but I'm going to ask you to do something now because you speak to ministers. It's your money as well as my money that's being wasted. <laughs> so I'd like you to say to them, what, what are you doing? Why can't you use these buildings? D&D might, um, you know, try and make excuses, which they always seem to do. But... Uh, for a building that cost them buildings that cost them nothing, and that the German government maintained for all these years, um, it's, it's as I say, it just seems to be a no-brainer to me. I'm happy to do exactly that because we've talked about inside this envelope of housing and a housing crisis is repurposing government-owned assets. And this is a classic example. We know we have a transient population concern in Happy Valley Goose Bay, people living on the trail network, trying to build this emergency shelter as opposed to repurpose an already standing government building with a fully operational kitchen and all the other amenities you speak to. I'm happy to do exactly that, Graham. Thank you very much, and let's hope uh, let's hope they listen. I hope uh, they do, which is, you know, it's a bit of a reach, but let's see where we can go. Okay, cheers. Th- thank you for this. Bye, Graham. Graham Morehouse with an excellent suggestion. So maybe there's an opportunity there. I don't know. Maybe we'll put it directly to I don't know, both provincial and federal ministers when we get the opportunity, because it's that sort of collaborative as opposed to operating in distinct silos. We know that there's jurisdictional authority associated with provinces, municipalities, and the federal government. We have seen examples of the federal government kind of getting involved in what was provincial responsibilities on many fronts in the recent past. But anyway, we'll do exactly what Graham suggested. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Conservative Party member for Calgary Forest Lawn. He's the shadow critic for the uh, uh, Department of Finance. That's Haj Holland. Good morning, uh, good morning, Mr. Holland. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. So a lot of numbers to digest in yesterday's fall economic statement. Of course, your leader has called it disgusting, and of course will not support it in the House of Commons. What specifically is uh, constitutes disgusting in yesterday's update? Well, what's disgusting today is that um, we see more than 2 million people going into a food bank today. We see more, uh, we see a middle class phenomenon that we've never seen before in Canadian history, and that's a middle-class, a two-person working family that are going into food banks, living in their cars, living under tents. This is certainly not the Canada that I would have imagined uh, when we moved here and also where, where I grew up. <clears throat> so what, what did this uh, false hope update that the finance minister came out with yesterday indicate? Well, the only thing to sum it up is really the prices are up, rent is up, debt is up, taxes are up, and now time is up. We didn't see a f- we didn't see many things in here. We didn't see a balanced budget. We know how uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada and the finance minister admitted that government's deficits fuel inflation. And in order to tackle that inflation, the governor of the Bank of Canada has had to raise his interest rates at the most rapid rate in Canadian history. So we did not see any balanced budgets. So inflation and interest rates coming down faster are, is not seen in this budget. Number two, we did not see the the axing of the quadrupling of the carbon tax that the Liberal NDP government will promise to do. 
We were asking for that to be paused until the next election so we could go on a carbon tax election and let Canadians decide whether they wanted a carbon tax or not. We also did, we saw more bureaucracy and not more homes being built. This uh, The plan that the, they, they literally just changed the name of a housing department and called that a housing plan. What we do see is a lot more opportunity for this government, this Liberal NDP government, to do photo ops for re-announcements of, of housing and uh, just more money shoveled out that won't really get any shovels in the ground. We did not see a proper plan, and we also saw $20 billion of new inflationary spending added onto the debt on Canadians' heads. Let's talk about some of the plans that were announced yesterday. So in the world, you know, some of these are re-announcements, absolutely right. We're moving the GST from purpose-built housing, co-op rental housing, but also in the world of $15 billion in new loan funding under what they're calling the Apartment Construction Loan Program. If we know the housing crisis is real and CMHC says we need to build some 3.5 million homes by the end of the decade, if that's not a good idea to put a loan program in place to encourage development what's the cpc replacement plan well let's let's be clear we're in a housing crisis after eight years of this liberal ndp government housing costs have doubled mortgages and rents have doubled in just eight years after uh, of justin trudeau what the we do have a plan our common sense conservative leader pierre polyev has tabled a plan inside of parliament already a, a bill that's called Build More Homes, Not Bureaucracy. The GST was already in there, so the Liberals pickpocketed that. We also have a plan to incentivize municipalities to increase their building permit closes, which means more homes built by 15%. Under a peer poly of government, if municipalities meet that target, they will get a building bonus. If they don't meet that target, then they will have infrastructure money withheld. We've seen after eight years of Justin Trudeau, him shoveling millions and billions of dollars to municipalities that aren't getting the work done to build more supply into the country. We also, for more more vulnerable populations, we want to see around federal transit, more high-density housing being built so it's more accessible for them to get to that transit that they so badly need. We, not on, and on top of that... When we talk to home builders today, one of the biggest burdens for them not to start building are these high interest rates. And as I mentioned before, this Liberal NDP government has has spent and added more debt than every government before them combined. And what that did was it gave 40-year highs in inflation and the most rapid interest rate hikes seen in Canadian history. Those interest rate hikes are, are stopping a lot of builders from building. We would balance the budget to bring down inflation, to bring down the interest rate. And by the way, today, Canadians are most at risk in the G7 for a mortgage default crisis because these mortgages that are renewing, some 70,000 plus mortgages that are renewing every month are renewing at double the rate. And that's what's putting them most at risk in the G7 of a mortgage default crisis. This is all caused after eight years of the government deficit. So I wouldn't give the government any credit for this new uh, mortgage charter because it's non-binding. It's up to the financial institution. But in the world of accelerating housing and the amount of money that's there, like uh, the $4 billion on the housing accelerator fund and the want and the need, including in the city where I live, it's all about population density and building density as opposed to building out. So in the world of a fifteen, uh, uh, $15 billion loan program, does that not address the high interest rates that are probably keeping some developers on the sideline? Uh, well, it hasn't done anything yet. Well, it just um, the, it was just announced housing, yesterday. The, well, the housing accelerator program was announced back in 2017. And after eight years, uh, 
not, the, the supply has actually gone down. Uh, housing investment has gone down 14%. That's, that's the record of this government. And after that 2017 program, that this housing program that the government launched, not a single house has been built under that program now. So, yes, they might dedicate money to housing, which they have done before, which, by the way, $89 billion was committed to housing. And what was the result of that? Housing cost doubled. So these are just more photo op. This is a photo op fund for them. It's not actually getting shovels into the ground. We need to have a common sense plan until we start getting the deficit under control to bring down those interest rates. Builders won't fully build. And we need to incentivize municipalities and get them to uh, reduce their gatekeeping so that more people can build. At the end of the day, we need to build, 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 not build more photo ops like we've seen after eight years of this liberal NDP government. But I guess my specific question is, when we talk about high interest rates, is there not a need for the creation of this recently announced, as of yesterday, $15 billion loan program? Because I agree, and I have people who are in the development business in my circle of friends, and they are hesitant to get in, in bed with banks now with the high interest rate when we're trying to hit affordability targets. But with the recent announcement regarding, you know, rents in this province will be put forward by the housing corporation not by the private developers. They'll be the landlord. So do you not see the merit in this $15 billion loan program to address exactly the concern you're articulating? The $15 billion loan program may, could also address a very, very small portion, but it does not address the fact that building permits are sometimes taking seven to eight years in some cases just to get people to get shovels in the ground. And in that time, sometimes the carrying cost of just starting a, a, a home can put a builder under. And, and when builders are putting that into their whole calculation, sometimes that, that is still a burden. Whether the government is going to be giving money to, to incentivize or not, we don't know that yet. But but it doesn't address the real need today. We know CMHC said that 3.5 million homes are needed today. This is not even a drop in the bucket yet. This is, this is just another photo op fund. When your party has criticized the government for overreach and getting involved in provincial and municipal jurisdictions and the, uh, the use of the word gatekeeper, are, is your plan not also saying that the federal government will get involved in municipal and provincial uh, jurisdiction and authority? We would be doing the exact opposite of Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau has shoveled millions and billions to municipalities with with little to no results. We need to tie in that funding with an incentive to build more homes. The free market knows best how to build, what to build, and how to do it the most efficient. And we need to get the gatekeeping out of the way for that to happen. As I mentioned before, when I sit down with with even uh, home builders associations like the London Home Builders Association in 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 Ontario, one of the biggest burdens is also the red tape that's behind just a building permit. The amount of time it takes to get that in and out, and then on top of that, the inspections process is sometimes not um, not streamlined and not the same for every every build. We need to. This is why we need to incentivize municipalities so that we can get that gatekeeping out of the way, the red tape out of the way, so people can build, 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 and help reduce costs as well. As an Albertan, this is not necessarily being talked about in the House of Commons very often, but it's a big deal, and you are a resident of Alberta and represent a riding in that province. What are your thoughts on uh, Premier Smith and the want to cash out of the Canadian pension plan and maybe be entitled to upwards of thir- thirty-three, or pardon me, $334 billion dollars and the impact it'll have on CPP and the country as a whole. Your thoughts? 
After eight years of Justin Trudeau... No, no, no. Let's let's stick with that question for a second. Canada is more divided than ever before. What Alberta is doing is a result of the attacks that Justin Trudeau has put on top of Alberta for the last eight years. We've seen this before with his father as well, and we're seeing this again now. When, when, he, when Justin Trudeau took office, he implemented anti-energy, anti-Alberta legislation, just like Bill C-69, the No New Pipeline Bill. We've seen the carbon tax, Bill C-48, that's not letting anything get done. Everything under Justin Trudeau is broken, and more than ever, confederation is broken. We've seen provinces having to step up and work against this government. Bill C-69 was ruled unconstitutional, most parts of it. And on top of that, now this plastic ban was also ruled unconstitutional. These kind of nonsensical uh, barriers, uh, bills that are being brought up by this Liberal NDB government are dividing provinces and dividing regions as well. And so this is the result of eight years of Justin Trudeau. As a parliamentarian, do you have a problem with Alberta cashing out a CPP and the impact that it will have on the plan itself and the country as a whole? As opposed to, you can point the finger of blame and fair ball, that's your prerogative. But as a parliamentarian, do you think that's wise by the Alberta government to cash out a CPP? It's about half the assets of the plan itself. So this is, again, this is the... the this is a reaction to the problem. But is it, but is it good or bad for Canada? Not and whether or not it's a reaction. Will, and, and I will say that our leader has been clear. We are encouraging Albertans to stay in the CPP. I appreciate the time this morning, Mr. Holland. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Yaz Holland, he's an MP for Calgary Forest Lawn, of course, shadow critic for finance. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep going. Uh, line number five, say good morning to uh, again, the Liberal member for Corner Brook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. Been a lot of politicians today, folks. Minister Jerry Byrne, you're on the air. It really has. I've been listening intently, Patty. So uh, I'll keep mine to uh, just a. Uh, I think well, it's a great news story. A lot of very, very happy patients in Western Newfoundland today who were uh, admitted for cardiac care. I wanted to take a moment just to thank the staff at Western Memorial Regional Hospital. But as well, the people in Eastern Health, the former Eastern Health, which is now we have a single health authority. And what I want to talk about, I think, is one of its greatest successes about integrating some of those services and creating better services for cardiac care in our province. Before we get to that, a uh, caller from Happy Valley Goose Bay, Graham Morehouse, asking an excellent question. The province spending millions of dollars to build emergency shelter in his community, and as a former parliamentarian, his thoughts were, you know, why not just repurpose some of the buildings at Five Wing Goose Bay, some of which are outside the secure fence, you know, fully operational kitchen, as opposed to knocking them down, and I know that's a federal issue, but there's a relationship between your government and the federal government, as opposed to knocking them down, why not just use those repurpose those types of buildings so to me it feels like left hand right hand not necessarily in sync your thoughts on mr morehouse i'd say well on its face it's an excellent idea obviously but i i'm not as familiar patty with the situation with cfb goose bay and the situation uh related to foreign country you know the the foreign militaries uh what what they own and what they are prepared to do i don't know who are the current owners of those buildings that were referred to but i i did listen to the um to the uh, to the discussion that you had with him, and I, I, on its face, it seems very very reasonable. It's what we are 
are uh, attempting to do with a lot of uh, public buildings, government of Newfoundland and Labrador owned buildings. We're examining those issues right now, but I wish I could give you a more def- you know, definitive point of view on uh, on wh- what state of repair those buildings may or may not be in and whether or not they'd be suitable, whether the current owners of them, whoever that may be, and I'm not familiar with that. So I wish I could be a little more definitive, but it'd be it just wouldn't be sensible for me to do so. And inside the world of housing, there is a direct relationship with population growth. It's supply-demand type of matter here. The yep. concept of repurposing government-owned assets right now in this province, you know, many of which are right here in the city or at least in the metro area, we talk about, you know, emergency shelters and minimum standards and building homes and all the rest, and it all has it plays a role. But what about repurposing some of the buildings that we currently have in place? Well, I couldn't agree more. Like, for example, we have schools in my, in my home city of Corner Brook, the private developer just bought uh, a presentation element a presentation high school and string that into condos we had a former convent that is being used uh, the mercy the uh, presentation sisters had a convent that's now a mental health um, a regular care home a residential home for people so that is occurring in our province and we think we need to double down and look at it even more and see what see what's feasible given the you know the bones of a building are what's important and whether or not it could be recrafted for housing that's where we are going we've heard from uh, social development minister and others regarding the employment stabilization plan does that have anything to do with your por- portfolio including skills because it just you know and i know it's probably not directly your value but those types of things and addressing root causes why people may indeed find themselves in precarious homelessness uh, situations those programs work does your portfolio have anything to do with that Oh, very much so. Listen, we have $150 million a year that we spend to train Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for the jobs of today and the jobs of tomorrow. Some of the things that, uh, that if, some of the cues, some of the parameters around homelessness and, and uh, home, home vulnerabilities our income levels, but also, of course, mental health and mental health supports. So it's a it's a pretty broad dynamic. It's a pretty broad continuum that impacts all of this. But having stable income from a secure job uh, that's market-driven just makes a real big contribution to all of this. And that's why we spend $150 million a year upskilling Newfoundlanders and Labradorians for the jobs of today and tomorrow. Yeah, and upscale is great and it's obviously needed, but you know, when we talk about the fact that with very very small numbers of financial incentives, a program that started at the beginning of the year with 170 people in this area enrolled in the Employment Stabilization Program, at this point, 40 of them no longer require social assistance. I mean, we've got to fast track that province-wide because we will chip away at the 22,000 people on social assistance. They'll be in a better lot in life. They'll advance up the ranks of wherever they choose to work. So I just love that program. You know, I don't love all government programs, but that one is an obvious yeah. winner. Uh, before we run out of time, I know you want to talk about the integration of services at the hospital. Go ahead. Yeah, so just very quickly, as, as the former minister for responsible for our income support program, that work was actually initiated by me so many, many years ago to look at pilot programs to make, uh, for those on income support in particular to be able to integrate into the workforce uh, just to create that little extra uh, incentive, that nudge, that uh, that lift up is the better way to put it. Uh, so I'm really proud of that work and I'm really, really proud of the government. We should do more and that's exactly where the pilot project appears to be going is proof positive that this works. So with that said, yes, we'll, we'll just transition here quickly into... Um, 
In Western Newfoundland, Patty, we've got uh, we're in a kind of a, a different situation in that there are services, especially for cardiac care, that are available within uh, the Health Sciences Centre. It's a pretty specialized field, and understandably so. Uh, you need very significant resources to be able to, to repair and, and um, do diagnostic work on on, uh, on heart issues. But with that said, we do have a lot of patients from Western that have been waiting a long time uh, for cardiac care, for dye tests, for cath lab work, other things. Um, we've This has been a perennial problem. This is not new. This has been around for many, many years. But it's innovation. It's the healthcare accord. Uh, it's looking at a problem differently uh, through fresh eyes. It really is, I think, created a better solution. We have uh, a special program whereby we take patients who are sitting been admitted to hospital uh, in various hospitals throughout the entire province outside of the the, uh, the St. John's region, uh, waiting for transport and the logistics and a, and a schedule for cardiac care. Those that can walk onto a plane, it, you know, we have an air ambulance system whereby you're, you know, for those who are very, very acutely medically uh, vulnerable, where there's physicians and specialized nurses that accompany them on a stretcher in an air ambulance that's one that's this is not what we're talking about here what we're talking about is a special uh, logistical it's a air transit a tra- a tra- air airlift from Goose Bay from Deer Lake from Gander into St. John's for same day cardiac care patients get on the plane in the morning they go into St. John's so there could be a dozen on the plane in total uh, they go into St. John's for cardiac care um, the procedures often take one or two hours. They're on the play that plane that night, uh, back to their homes where they're either discharged immediately at the airport, or they're uh, they're put back in the same room, the same bed that they were uh, left in in the morning. And that is really speeding things up. We're going to normalize that. We're not to, so we've got a number of different flights that have been chartered to do that in the coming uh, uh, weeks ahead. But of course, there will be an RFP to normalize and make permanent that process, it's going to cut down on a lot of time sitting in a hotel, sorry, in a, in a hospital bed waiting for care, which is really now the case. That's where innovation comes in. Bravo to those who did it, and that's the healthcare workers. You've had the last word. Thank you, Minister. Appreciate it. All the best to you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Some days we go stretch the days when we speak to no politicians. I suppose when you get the big announcements like yesterday, inevitably that will happen. And, of course, our main focus here is not only just to get the information from politicians, but to have conversations with you, the taxpayer. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who participated in the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.